Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. Divert is a program run by a team of charity workers committed to diverting young adults away from crime. In episode 44 of this podcast, I spoke to its founder, Chief Inspector Jack Rowlands, who set up the initiative to steer those who find themselves in police custody away from a life of crime. It's part of the Mayor of London's Violence Reduction Unit that works towards reducing violence. Divert is a metropolitan police custody program designed to divert 18 to 25-year-olds away from offending and into employment, sometimes development or education. The custody intervention coaches, and they're key here, have already worked with over a 1,000 young people who have been arrested for a range of offences. My guest today, Aaron Johnson, is one of those coaches. Thank you for joining me on my podcast, Aaron. Um, I've been looking forward to talking to you since I spoke to Jack, actually, because he gave me the kind of authoritative kind of, of approach, although he's not quite of that kind, as police officers go. But it was really interesting talking to him about why he founded this Divert project. But before we go into, into your role as a custody intervention coach, tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, who is Aaron, for those who don't know you? It's always a difficult question. Like, who who is Aaron? Um, well, thirty years old, male, living in London, um, South London to be precise. Grew up in West Norwood, um, so in the the London borough of of Lambeth. My early years was was okay. Obviously, like most um, young adults or around my age, we had ups and downs growing up, based on the the crowd that I was around more particularly in like secondary school. Made a few mistakes, ones that obviously I, I learned from and it allows me to do this kind of work just based on the people I was around and, and the early encounters that I had with, say, the police, which which led me to kind of in, in situations where it was difficult to step away from that. Because you got your friends that you've grown up with, they're doing whatever. Um, it was the, the infancy of like social media as well. So everyone wanted to be around whatever's happening. I think back then it was MSN. Like it's children nowadays, they don't know what that is. But but we was on there. There was a situation where I was I was just present when certain things was happening. I think there was there was a, a robbery when I was growing up with some of my peers. I didn't partake in it, but I was there. And at the time, I was identified as being someone that was there. So obviously, I, that was my first real encounter with the police where I got arrested. How was uh, you? How old was you at the time? I think I was fourteen or fifteen at the time. So I got put brought to to Lewisham Police Station. I think this happened in in Downham. Um, so it was in the in, in the the bar of Lewisham. So that was the nearest police station at the time. And uh, when 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 you describe when you talk about being uh, among the wrong crowd, was you 
just following the crowd? Was you just sort of in the middle? You know, you have different hierarchies, if you like. There's yeah. those who lead, there's those who follow. Those I who... think it's, it's a weird one because although I weren't necessarily partaking in certain things, in terms of our social group, I was probably one of the leaders. But it wasn't, I was more a leader as I was a bit more vocal rather than the person who was, we're doing this, we're going here, etc. But because growing up in secondary school, they're your friends. I'm around them more than I'm around my family. So that that was, other than obviously my, my immediate family, they was also family. So growing up, I was around them a lot. Um, and because they are my friends, it's, it's, it's not easy to say, don't hang around with them anymore. Because I'm with them five days a week from 8.30 in the morning till four or five o'clock in the afternoon. So there's nothing wrong with hanging around with with your mates. It's it's what you get up to that people concern themselves with. So, you know, a group of guys, young black guys or mixed group of guys walking down the street, there's no harm in that. We have these stereotypical images, but I'm trying to get at that, you know, what was it that you and your friends were doing? I mean, we all as teenagers do something that's naughty. Naughty is an easy yeah. word. But what was it that you think you were doing or behaving in a particular way that made you stand out, if at all? Yeah, I think at, at that time, there was a lot of feuds going on. Um, in Bromley at the time, there was a like a, an Albanian community that moved into the area. There was a lot of tension with them and just everyone in general. <laughs> So it would be a situation where we'd be in Bromley, not necessarily looking or seeking any type of trouble, but it was like, because there was a group of us, that community would see us as, but at the time, thankfully, um, I think a couple of them and a couple of us played football together. So that was our, that made it a bit more respectful, but that's only if they was with the group at the time. So you can imagine if there was time when we were seen in Bromley, etc. And our friends that are our associates was not with them. There's no one over there to say, no, nah, these are all right. Like, you don't have to trouble them. So the situations where a lot of foot chases <laughs> growing up. So um, what do you mean by that foot chases? Being chased, like through Bromley. So it would be a situation like it's, it's either you stand and you fight or you run. Thankfully, we ran <laughs> because at the time they was older than us. Um, we were 14, 15 at the time there. Some of them late teens, early 20s. So just size-wise, it would have been very silly for us to stay there and try and fight. But, but why would they target you? Just because you're a group of guys hanging around and they just want to challenge you for that? It looked like that, to be honest. Cause we was, It's not like we was there pointing fingers and shouting and, and, and carrying on in any type of way. It was just we were seen and then they were coming towards us. When 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 people... You educate me and my listeners, Aaron, on, on this one. As a group of guys, did you see yourself as a gang? Did you just see yourself as a group of friends? I think at the time, friends. We wasn't we weren't associated to any gang. We wasn't using a specific name or such to, to kind of, we were just went to the same school. We were all together after school. Went to Bromley, went to, to Sydenham, Catford, wherever, but we were together. So I think from the outside looking in, it would come across as a gang, but we wouldn't say we was a gang. Obviously, growing up now, being an adult, me looking back, I can see why we could have been kind of interpreted as a gang because it's easy to point that finger. But then being having lived both sides of the, the fence, I do understand why, and at the same time, I do understand that you shouldn't just automatically associate a group of young people being together as being in a gang. So it's, it's, it's education on both parts. We could have obviously presented ourselves a bit better growing up in, in those um, situations. And at the same time, from the outside looking in, could the people kind of pointing the finger and saying we was a gang, could they be a bit more educated around what a gang is, how to identify a gang and what the group of children are doing? If they're just together, they're not a gang. You can't just automatically assume they're a gang. But if they're out causing trouble, then fair enough, you could have that that perception that they're 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 in a gang or they're here to kind of cause any t- sort of um, disturbance in the area. But 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 even a group of kids who are causing trouble, depending on what that trouble is, are not necessarily a gang. I found it really interesting that you say we could have presented ourselves differently. What what did you mean by that? It's how we just easily how we dressed, but at the same time, fashion's fashion. If Nike brought out a tracksuit and it's got a hood on it, 
we're gonna wear the hood. That's part of the tracksuit. I'm I'm 30 now. I, I I wear hoodies every day, but I don't get perceived like that anymore just because of my age. So it's like, why should you be in 14, 15 automatically because you're wearing a hoodie be associated as you're going to be up to no good? And I think at that time it was like when hoodies was a proper taboo, like anyone wearing a hoodie is in a gang. So we had that kind of that hurdle to kind of come across when we're just out and about. And that was um, the media's responsibility because they started to paint the image of hoods are. And in fact, there were some campaigns or some news reports saying that they should be banned. Kids banned, shouldn't be allowed. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous really, it, but it was horrendous. Um, so you can imagine we're walking around, even if I was by myself and I had a hood on, people would be second looking, make checking if I'm going to, grab their bag, grab their purse. It's like, I'm just coming here. Just the same way you've come to buy your milk and your bread, I'm doing the same. But yeah, that that was, if anything, it enhances how I do my work now. It's so interesting. It's so powerful that you took away from that, not a negative where it, it, it kind of weighed on you. I mean, at the yeah. time, obviously. but you... Yeah, that's, and that's, that's the, the benefit of obviously hindsight to be able to live a certain amount of time after I look back and be like, all right, what can I learn from, from that period of that experience? So speaking to my young people now with work, it, it does make it a lot more relatable. If I explain to them, look, I was also in the same shoes you're in. I've got here by looking at it this way, but they're in a position where they can look at it that way a lot sooner. I'm 30 now. They're currently 15. So the sooner they kind of um learn from my, my journey, the, the better. You mentioned at 14 was the first time that you, you had a brush with the law because of this robbery. What what Was that the only time you got in trouble? No, I think, again, the stereotype. And I, I, I spoke to Jack about it before I started doing Divert because my impression of the police growing up wasn't the greatest. It was, again, the height of stopping and searching. I could be in my school uniform. I'm getting stopped and searched and beckoning coming from school. Um, just out on a weekend again, stop and search. So it was a bit frustrating. I've never been a weapon carrier. So when I'm getting stops and search, I'm like, I'm not the person you need to be stopping. There's, <laughs> there's other guys out there that's really got stuff that you should be stopping. Like you sh- it's, I'm in my school uniform, but again, hindsight, looking back, they're just doing their job. And it took for me to come into that, that environment with the police to kind of understand that like all establishments in the world, there's going to be some that there's going to be good cops. There's going to be bad cops. That's just how it is. I know growing up, there was um, situations where I feel that the the power was kind of abused. And there's other times when I probably could have made their life a bit easier, but that just comes out of frustration. If I've been stopped and set four, five, six times that week or that month, by the fifth and the sixth time, I'm not going to be as patient with my response. And was um, was 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 during that time when the police were stopping you, especially when you're in your school uniform, were they sort of articulating to you why they were doing what they were doing? Because you say after the fourth or fifth time, you get a little annoyed by it, you get angry by it, you become more anti-authority because you think you're just becoming a target because of the way you dress, the colour of your skin, etc., etc. But did they at any of these occasions sort of explain to you, look, we're just trying to protect you as well as other people. Or we're just making sure we're doing our job. Unfortunately, at the time, the excuse was normally always the same. I fit the description, which obviously it, it was, but like I said, but by the fifth and the sixth time, there can't be that many people looking exactly like me walking around here. Like, let's be realistic. I remember one incident, I was stopped. Um, they searched my bag. And in school, I, I played football. So in school... Obviously, there was got my football trainers in the bag, grass at the bottom of the bag. They searched it, found the grass, and accused basically said it was weed. So it was like, really? Again, in that situation, I was annoyed because don't smoke, don't sell weed, nothing. So for you to like that really irritated me. Like, <laughs> you said, was, uh, what, what's interesting when you talk about the harassment that you faced and no doubt some of your friends and people around you, do you think that played any role in you taking on that persona? Because now you're being seen as this person who fits the description, who has weed in his bag when it's only grass from your football boots. Do you think that that, 
that turned you into the kind of character, and I don't know what character you are, we still get into that, but do you think it had any impact on who you then become or went on to get involved with? No, 100%. I think being human and being a child as well, if you, if someone is painting you of a certain picture, time, 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 time again, you naturally start to fit that description yourself in terms of your mannerisms and, and the kind of decisions that you make. And it happens to so many young people, like every day, whether it's at school, whether it's at college, whether it's at uni, if you keep saying a child is a certain way, they're eventually going to start acting in that certain way unless they've got people around them that can keep them on the straight and narrow kind of thing. Why do you think that is? Why, why do you think that you adopt that or, or live up to that reputation? Because it's, it's, one, it's like the... If I'm going to get accused of it, I might as well do it. It's one of those kind of situations. You can think of it as, as, as adult life. And forgive me for kind of not having a better comparison, but it's like if someone's in a relationship and they're consistently accused of, say, cheating, chances are eventually they're going to go and dip their toe in the water because they can they keep getting accused. And if an, if an adult can do that, there has to be the understanding that a child's going to do the same because they're not going to be able to be as, um, not going to be able to make the, the same decisions. They're not going to be able to think as rational as an adult. So if an adult still goes over to the other side of that fence, then you, no one can blame a child for doing the same, especially if they're consistently painted as, as, as a certain image. I'm, I'm not going to make excuses for you, you tell me, but do you think that then led to you getting involved in that incident that you mentioned at 14 and did it lead on to you doing other things 100 percent. i think that then led to being around a different group of friends because at the time when i was stopped for the football situation my friend circle was slightly different after that my friend circle kind of changed a bit and it's only having this discussion with you now and actually thinking back it was around about those times that my friend circle did kind of change. Again, at the time, I probably didn't realise it. I just saw them as, oh, like, we're all going to the same school still. They're still my friends. These things kind of happen. Everyone changes their friend circle, but it's, it's, it's only now kind of thinking back at the the different incidents that probably led to that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm kind of imagining that, you, like you said, you're hanging around with your football friends who are not getting in trouble or not going down that route. And then all of a sudden you go through these experiences with the police and all of a sudden you take on this persona where maybe I'm a little bit of a bad boy now, maybe people are seeing me bad. So you gravitate towards those that are going through the same experiences and you kind of unconsciously, collectively become the little bad boy group because you're now tarnished with that brush. What, what trouble did you get into with the police over the next few years? A lot of it was being in a situation where there was like feud with other local schools going down, fighting other schools, the robbery situation where I wasn't, when I was just present, other situation where it was just like, I think a few shoplifting stuff where the police was obviously called, other incidents where I think someone had a knife that the police was called. So it was just being around the wrong crowd. Did you end up with a criminal record? With the, and this was proper, like this was, in a, like the proper wake-up call, the robbery incident that I wasn't involved in, but I was there, obviously I was arrested for it, got released NFA, but that was on my record for about five or six years as a conviction. And that's what my first proper encounter with the criminal justice system, like how it all works and CRBs and stuff like that. So when I went to get work and I've, I've done a CRB, it's come back and it said, robbery, conviction, Campbell Crown Court. I've never been to, to a crown court in my life, like outside of work. So it's like, this shouldn't be there. So obviously you can imagine, that's my response. So you can imagine my mom's response at the time. She was like, yeah, she weren't happy. So we let us back and forth, back and forth. Um, CRB wasn't taking ownership. The police, the CRB saying it's a police matter. The police are saying that it's the CRB. And for those who don't know what CRB is. Criminal Record Brural. At the time, but now it's DBS, but I can't remember the name of the acronym. But it's basically a, a um, like a police check, a criminal record check. So if you go for a job interview, education kind of structure, you would have to do a police check so they can kind of see what you've been convicted for to ensure that you're suitable for the or safe to be in that kind of role. 
so yeah, when that was on there, that was that was proper frustrating because it it it, it hindered me in certain jobs I wanted to go to because I wanted to work with kids having that on there. And I'm not gonna lie, I'm not gonna say I've got a conviction when I haven't. So if I'm saying I haven't got a conviction, they do the the, the CRB check and it comes back that it's on there. I'm in a situation now. So he's going back and forth for for a little while trying to get that sorted. It finally did in the end. No one, no no apology. It was just a, it, one day it wasn't on there anymore. So you have a clean so, record. So once that, that, yeah, there's nothing on there. Yeah, thankfully, that, that's good that to is. hear. Tell tell me about how you got involved in Diver and and you know how that works out. Yeah, so it was a it was an interesting one. So obviously going into an adult, um, playing football, like most people, when you get to about 22, 23, you realise the professional dream is over. <laughs> was you that good? I mean, we've all um, been there. Was you that good? I was all right. I mean, if I started earlier, potentially, but I didn't start playing football properly because till I was like 15, 16, like, to okay. a, like properly. I was doing the kickabouts and stuff in school like when I was, when I was um, younger, but like in ter- terms of like a structured team properly when I was about 16 after school, kind of like early college. And I played catch-up. So I'd done, I'd done a right considering I, I started so late. Played like good level semi-pro. So yeah, that done a right. Got to about 22, 23. Realised, yeah, I need, probably need to get like a proper job. The semi-pro money isn't paying the bills. <laughs> so and and to, was that your sole career playing semi-pro football or was you at college at much. the same I had time? Like, yeah, I, had, I was at college and I had like the odd part-time job. But... Between that and football, that's where my, my 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 income was coming in. What was you studying at college? Uh, done sports, so like sports coaching. I think like leisure and sports industry, um, level one and level two, and then done my um my sports coaching BTEC at Bromley College. So done that, finished, and then yeah, needed needed a job. So I've done a few different jobs at football coaching. Done a bit of stewarding. Um, fortunate enough to to have been a, a, a supervisor for the security at the Olympics, so I done that. So I done like my SIA and everything. That was a good experience, being in that that environment, meeting a lot of celebrities, a lot of athletes. That helped with like leadership skills as well. Being a supervisor, um, and obviously the the roles and responsibilities that came alongside that. It, um, it did shape me to, to to go into this kind of work to be able to manage certain things. Then I was working in a school for four or five years. Then I went uni late, late. Um, started uni at 24, 25, no, 26. Started uni very late. So you can imagine I'm in the class, oldest in the class. Everyone's 18, 19. You probably didn't look the age. Uh, you know, that's uh, when I had a shaved bed. So I'm in the class with everyone. Um, my mom, my fo- the, the fact that I started so late, my focus is different. I'm literally there to get my degree. I'm not there to do the, the, the student parties and stuff like that. Nothing. I'm there to get my degree. And why was that? What, did you feel that you were missing out on something and you needed to go back or was you being pushed in that direction? Was it driven by yourself or driven by outside? No, no, like? yeah. no, myself, completely, like solely myself. I think because I was working in school for so long, I felt the only step up would be to become a, a teacher. To do that, I had to have my degree. So I went uni initially to become a PE teacher. So I went and studied a sports coaching degree. But obviously being uni full-time, from from working full-time to going to uni full-time, money, and my son at the time, I needed to earn money as well as studying. So I started working part-time at um, Crystal Palace Foundation. I spoke with the previous head of community, Sway Briggs, who kind of had a good a good conversation with him similar to what we're having now I told him my background told him what um what my interests are and he said I'd be good to do like youth mentoring never done it before other than like when I'm doing the football coaching and you have the the kind of lighthearted conversation with, with children I've never thought about actual youth mentoring around crime prevention thankfully he gave me the um the opportunity and at that time Divert was was in his infancy with Palace um, so he was like, look, we've got divert coming up. We feel that you're going to, you, you're a good person to, to kind of go through. We want you to, to, to kind of lead that from, from a palace perspective. Again, I, I have to thank him and my manager at the time, George Henry, for allowing me that freedom to do it. Cause I didn't, at the time I wasn't micromanaged. I was just allowed to kind of learn the role, get on with it, trial and error, which I think 
is the best way to learn. What was the role? Divert. So leading the divert program from from Palace perspective um, at Croydon Custody Centre. What does that mean for those who don't know anything about what we're talking about? So divert is a custody intervention program targeting 18 to 25 year olds that come into police custody for various offences. And we are there, in a sense, a lifeline whilst in custody speaking to them and, and hopefully getting them to something a bit more productive and away from the life that they're evidently living, be it training, be it education or employment, or just someone to speak to. You know, a lot of them could have a, a lot of weight on their shoulders. They just need someone to that will listen, open ears, offer them some form of advice and allow them to um to, to feel like they're being listened to and change their, their way of living. I enjoy it. I think... The people that engage with the program um, that come into custody benefit from it. Um, but like most things, you get out what you put in. And I let them know straight away, look, I'm happy to help, but you also got to help yourself in this situation. I can create or I can, I can bring to you all the opportunities in the world. But if you don't engage in it, take it with, with both hands and try your best, there's only so much you're going you're gonna to kind of get out of it. Um, and thankfully, the, the the majority that engage fully do end up changing their lives around by just getting into employment or just a bit of structure to their life, whether that's waking up on time before midday and um, and things like that. I, I, I think it's, you know, when I first heard about Divert, I was really interested in it because, you know, as a young man who ended up in police custody many times myself, you know, having someone come into that cell um, and talk to me, just talk to me about things no one's ever asked me about, no one's ever talked to me about, may have had an impact on my life. So I can see the value in it. But let me unpick a little bit more so I can really drill down into your relationship with, I don't know whether you call them clients, offenders, young people. It's a, it's, it's a hard one. Like Some call them clients, some call them young people. It's, 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 I don't. I don't know how to label. I, I don't want to label them. As but they're such. not clients, I would argue, because they don't want but to be not. there. They've been caught for something they shouldn't have done, and they're now. Uh, I don't know whether you call them an offender. People want to use wishy-washy terms, but they are what they are. At that point, they're you know under arrest for a crime they may have committed. It may be that they're cleared of that crime, or didn't do that crime, or maybe guilty of that crime. But that's not the point. Let me ask you this, Aaron. Take me just briefly. Just walk me through a day in the life of Aaron when you're doing this work, you know, how you end up going to a police station, what it takes to go into that cell, the kind of reaction you get from the person in that cell, etc. So my, my day normally when I'm in custody would be sitting in custody. Obviously you can imagine the, the noise and the going on that's happening in custody. What I'll do is go to one of the members of staff in there. Um, so either a sergeant or a DDO. I'll basically ask them, is anyone in that fits the criteria? Um, if the member of staff is new, then I'll have to just reiterate what the criteria is, which is 18 to 25. Um, ideally unemployed, but not essential. If there are in, in different fields of work, there's no wrong in us having a conversation anyway. They may not want to do that work. They may want to do something completely different. And this is an opportunity for us to kind of support them in that that transition into something else. Um, if they do fit the the kind of criteria, then I get them to print off the front sheet, taking a note of the the cell number. I'll go to the to the cell, um, open up the wicket, and introduce myself. The wicket um, being the the the, the, the hatch. hatch, yeah. So I open Never up the, heard it the, the called the wicket. a wicket before. Yeah. <laughs> so I open that up, um, introduce myself. The good thing about it is, I'm in my own clothes, most likely a hoodie, tracksuit, whatever, but. I'm not in police uniform because obviously I'm not a member of the, the, the Metropolitan Police. So I'll speak to them, introduce myself. How you doing? Name's Aaron. Work for an organisation called Divert. I'm just here to have a conversation with you. Something that you're not forced to do. It's voluntary. Just to find out ways that we can potentially support you in hopefully making things a bit better when you get released. Now that could be in the means of education, training or employment. And then that's when you kind of gauge whether their ears prick up when you kind of say that or if they stay with their hood over their head the blue blanket over them and they're not really interested but even if they their reaction is the latter I will still give them a few seconds 
try again? Like, is there anything that you want to do for work? Obviously, on a piece of paper, it may say they're unemployed. What have you thought about doing for work? Have you tried to get into any work? What kind of work have you tried to get into? Hopefully, they start to engage a bit more there. And you give them the opportunity to, to have a conversation. I say, look, if this is something that you're interested in, more than welcome to, to take you out. You can have a sit down and consultation and have a more in-depth conversation about life. See where we can kind of support you with. It doesn't have to be work. Um, if we can support with, with, with accommodation, um, we'll try. The worst you will get from us is a no, but we're not going to sell any kind of false hopes. We're not, I'm not going to tell you I'm going to get you accommodation and then... In two days' time, I tell you, oh, I couldn't get it. I'll be honest with you. It's no guarantees, especially with accommodation, but we'll try our best. And then, yeah, at, at minimum, it gets them out of their cell for half hour, hour, two hours. Once you're in the consultation, the conversation is very, very, very informal. There's no speech etiquette. <laughs> they don't have to necessarily be politically correct. They just have to say what's on their chest and we can just, just, just have a conversation around it. And no. how difficult is that? Because I suppose you have this young person in a, a cell who may be scared of the fact that they're going to be charged with an offence. It may be that they um, are on drugs. Maybe they are, you know, untrustworthy of you and think that maybe you're just a police officer in a hoodie. I mean, how do you break down those barriers once you've got them engaged? I think the the biggest thing that kind of breaks that down is how I look and how I speak. Obviously, when I'm speaking to them, it's not I speak to them as I would speak to everyone in terms of whether they're friends, whether it's people at work, whether it's young people. I speak how I speak. I don't try to put on a different hat in different situations because eventually I'm going to revert back to how I my natural way of speaking. And then someone's going to be like, hold on a minute. You're that's not how you were speaking a minute ago. So I always speak the same no matter where I am. Um, if the best word to use is, is, is slang then I use it whether I'm in a meeting or not because again that's myself it, it got me this far 30 years into my life so it's working <laughs> so, I, so I speak to them just normal as I would my friends and I think they respect that and it's, it's, it's the fact that someone is willing to ask them a question and listen and give them a response they're probably used to people listening to to answer the question rather than listening to listen actually digest what they've said and offer them some form of solution, whether that be situation that's happening at home, situations happening in the community. The only thing that we we kind of plead with them is to not speak about why they've been arrested. Because you can imagine it can implicate the investigation. Now that can make things worse for them or better. We don't know. But to avoid that, we just tell them when we go into consultation, look, obviously we're not being listened to, we're not being watched, but I still got my bills to pay. I've got two children that need to be fed. So I'm not going to jeopardize that. So I ask you to respect my wishes and not speak about anything that, that can obviously incriminate you, in particular what you've kind of been arrested for. Once they hear that honesty, they're more likely to just talk about stuff in general because they because, feel that. And, and that's important, isn't it? That, that what you do has nothing to do and has no bearing on the reason they're arrested or whether they go on to be charged or released. It has nothing to do with that. This is an intervention program that tries to reach out to these young people. Can I ask this? Is there a common theme with the, the, the individuals that you meet, Aaron? I mean, is there, if you were to say, you know what, the majority are young girls who have been put, or the majority are, are mixed, black and white and Asian and, and, and other ethnic groups. I mean, is there a common theme to the people you come across? I think the majority is, and it's going to be no surprise to people listening, are males, in particular black male. So I think in terms of my numbers since 2018, it's been, I think the, in terms of the, the volume, have been black males and then white males and then Asian males, and then white females, then black females. That's been I'd, I'd say that's the 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 volume in terms of top to to, to bottom. That that's interesting. And in, in an honest conversation, are we saying? And, and I'm not judging people on the crimes that they committed. Uh, do you find that those individuals um, are typical, targeted, like you was as a young man? Or you know, let's have it straight. These guys and girls whatever their colour, are in those police stations, majority of the time because they've been caught doing something they shouldn't have been 
doing or do you feel that you know there is a lot of discrimination because you come into contact with these people and probably they rant on about how unfair their arrest has been I mean whether it's genuine or not I don't want to get into the politics of it because that's not what we're here for but I I do value your judgment because you're living this all the time yeah now I do feel from from obviously what they've come in for and every time we speak to someone, we will read their circumstances as to why they've come in. They could be, they could have come in for ABH, but the circumstances alongside that. So we will read that. Nine out of 10 times they deserve to have got arrested. But it's not necessarily the offence itself. It's what's led up to it. So I'm, I'm an honest person. I understand how the world works. I understand that people are antagonised to, to make certain reactions. And, but it's the reaction that, or the, it's the consequences that come with the reactions. A lot of the stuff that people come in for could have been avoided, especially when it comes to things like the ABH or anything around assault. If it's things like possession or PWITS, uh, possession with intent to supply, you know what you're doing, if we're being honest. <laughs> if you're caught in a car or on foot and you've got 17 bags, snap bags in your, in your bag, it's hard to defend you in that situation. It's just a matter of, when you're out, what can we do to support you? But yeah, there are situations where I feel that given the right guidance prior, they may have made better better decisions and may not have um, resulted in them obviously doing something that's led to them being arrested. You're, you're obviously a lifeline to a lot of these individuals that you engage with because they probably, you know, not only are they getting out of the cell for a few hours, but but you're offering him, you know, offering probably a lot of these something they've never been offered before, even if it's just an ear, even if it's just you listening to them tell you things they probably never shared with anyone before that's led up to them ending up in police custody. That's quite a weight. How do you as an individual, Aaron, you're a young 30 year old man, but how do you deal with that? Because every time you hear someone's story, especially if it's a sad story that involves, I don't know, domestic abuse, physical sexual abuse. Or, or just a lifestyle that they've led, you know, neglectful parents or, or whatever it is, you've got to take that out of the custody with you. How do you cope with that? I think at first it, it was hitting hard, especially some of the stories that, that they'd say. It's, um, for instance, some of them could have witnessed some horrendous domestic abuse growing up to the point where they've it's kind of led them to, to normalise it in their, in their adult life. It, it, yeah, at first it was it was it was hard. Thankfully, like Nick and and Jack and Anne Marie at Divert, they've kind of they got us onto like ACE training, to like trauma informed training, so that when we go in and we speak to these people, we are in terms of our own mental mental capacity in the best position to offer them support without us breaking down. If we break down in front of them, nobody gets help. <laughs> so it's, it's it's important that we kind of remain um calm um and understanding obviously a lot of a lot of a lot a lot a lot a lot of empathy especially of what they're going through and just yeah offer the best advice that we can kind of kind of give like I'm, I'm i'm honest with everyone that i speak to in there i am not a psychiatrist i am not trained psychiatrist i don't claim to be a psychiatrist i can offer you advice but the advice i offer you is based on what i know and what i've experienced they need some form of mental health support I tell them, look, I am not probably not the best person to give you advice, but I'm more than happy to give you advice. If they're happy with to being referred into um, some form of mental health service externally, more than happy to. I think a lot of them don't want to speak to like the um, the mental health nurse within custody for whatever reasons. You know, it's the stigma of oh, if they disclose anything to them, they're gonna use it against them in court. So it's kind of just letting them know, look, that I respect your judgment, I respect your decision. When you get released, if it is still something that you feel that you you require or want some form of support with, I'm more than happy to sort of that referral so you can get that support. Because at the end of the day, it don't make sense us getting you housing or us getting you training or employment if mentally you're not ready for that. Because then we don't want to be in a situation where I don't want to be in a situation where I'm setting anyone up for failure. I want to be sure that whatever opportunity I put someone forward for, they're going to give the best account of themselves. And that comes from making sure that holistically everything is calm and in the best um, possible situation for them so when you do have a client an offender a, a custody prisoner 
engaging with you so that they want to take up maybe something that you're offering that's not in their life already, education, employment, or, 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 or a chance to develop themselves or escape a situation that has led them to being where they are. When somebody's engaged and you've started that process and you can see it's going down the right lines, how do you follow that up? Because obviously they've got to go back into the cell. They then get processed by the system and some might end up going to court, etc. How do you follow that up or don't you? No, no, 100%. But we have to. I mean, we will do what we can, allow them to engage. We will try and tear down a minute. If they haven't got credit, we will do the phoning and the texting. That's not a problem. The follow-up involves once we kind of get to the end of our conversation and consultation, they're offered the trifold. In the um, information trifold, it's got all the information about Divert, um, what we do, who we are, why we do it, along with my business card. And on there's my name, uh, my contact number for myself and my email address. I give that to them as well as taking a form of contact from them, hopefully two forms of contact. So usually it will be a phone number and an email address. Um, I think when it comes to like courses and training, etc., it's just a lot more smoother when it's on email because then they can just click the link and then open it straight up. Um, obviously, phone calls will require a, a number. And I tell them as soon as they give me their number and I get back to, to the desk, I'll text them the phone straight away. So when they get released, they've got the number there on their, in their hand um, once they get their phone back. And I just let them know, look, I'm going to text you and send the email. As soon as you are released, just reply to it. If you haven't got any texts or, or contacts, I'll still give you a phone call in the next two or three days just to see if, you, if you've if you been released, etc. Or next time I'm in custody, I can just put their custody number back in the computer and see if and when they've been released. Once I obviously have that, that, that information that they have been released, then I'll phone them. And then we kind of pick up our conversation um, either over the phone, via Zoom. Um, prior to obviously the, the COVID pandemic, it would have been meeting up in like that, but a football stadium or in a coffee shop. But things like that, we will just have to ensure that we do the right risk assessments to make sure that not just we're safe, but also they remain safe and people in the, in the community remain safe as well. We want to be in a situation where we tell them to meet us at a local Costa and then they've got friction in the area. And obviously it puts their, their life and their well-being at risk. It, it's it's really interesting. I mean, in the ideal world, on paper, these things run smoothly. You know, you can chronologically, but but you tell me, what are the challenges that you face? Because I suppose sometimes these kids, they get out and then they don't get in contact with you anymore. They give you a duff number. There's only so much you can do. And I think at the very beginning, it was very telling what you said. Whatever you do, whatever you are prepared to offer, it's got to come from them. It has to start with them wanting to, to take what you're offering them and, and run with it. What what are the challenges that you find you face most most often? I think, and I, I can probably speak for all the kind of custody coaches, the most frustrating part of the role will be having a good conversation with someone in custody. You feel that you've got through, you feel that you can, in your head, whilst you're having a conversation, you're planning the support that you can give them in the back of your mind, all the email that you can send people, the phone calls, the different organisations you can get in touch with to, to support them. And then when they get released, there's no contact. So either, even if it's the right number, you might get a phone. They, you you could phone them, which has happened to me a number of times. They answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna call you back. I'm going to just give me five minutes. I'm going to call you back. You ring them back. Either the, it's either the phone's off or the number's been blocked. So it's frustrating. But at the same time, it kind of enhances why we do this kind of role because it's around getting them to understand their peer associations in the community and the negative influences that they have around them. It is hard once they're in a 10 or 15 year cycle to just remove themselves from it, especially if they're in a, in a, in a, like a block with all their friends. How do you tell them not to associate with, with all the people that, that they live with just from an hour or two conversation? That's something that has to take a lot of, I'm picking over a number of months or potentially years, which is it's not always, we're not always afforded that time to work with someone before they unfortunately reoffend. So either is a challenge, but again, it doesn't stop us from, from trying. Can you share with me one of your success stories, something that, you, you know, you're, you're proud of? I mean, no doubt you're proud of doing all that you do, but is there one story that you can remember that you're really proud of? I think, and he... <laughs> He's probably, it's probably draining how much 
I speak about him and turn it from his perspective because I give him his I give him his props. He's done well. Like he's he's come in a couple of times for for possession and also um possession with intent to supply, class B. Worked with him number of months, number of uh, about a year, year and a half. Done some good work with him. Got him into a few courses, um, reduced his cannabis intake, got him onto FA level one course, continued to progress well. I felt that after the conversation and the relationship that we built, I trusted him enough to get him a job at Palace for Life. So he started working at the foundation initially as a as just like a a, a second coach, so it's a, a supportive coach. And now he's 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 got a couple of sessions that he's leading. So he's doing well. I know that he's he's ready and, and preparing himself to to start an FA level two football coaching course. And and I would I can't even take the credit. I know a lot of people look at me and be like, oh no, that's it's him. Because again, all I can do because I work for the foundation already and it's it's easy for me to do certain things because at the end of the day it's still my job. It's still something that after everything I'm still getting paid to do. But it's something that he doesn't have to do. Everyone that we work with, they don't have to do it. It's it's actually their choice. So the fact that he's he's remained focused and disciplined throughout, yeah, I've got a I hold my hat off to him every single time. And just just make that connection for me, because at the beginning you talked about, you know, your your career and how you ended up working for the Crystal Palace Football Foundation and how that led to you taking on this mentoring role. So just just glue together for me, Aaron, the relationship between Divert and, and Premiership football clubs or other football clubs. Yeah, so um, I think from 2018, Divert, felt that it would be good to partner up with some professional football clubs because they have a a, a strong link with their local communities. Um, so in doing so, I think at the time, Tottenham, Millwall and myself at Palace all came on board. I think after about a month, Tottenham kind of took a step back, but Palace and Millwall continued to, to deliver um, divert. So Millwall covers um, Lewisham Custody Suite, um, and obviously that that community, along with some Greenwich and some Southwark, slightly. Um, myself at, at Croydon was covering Croydon, Sutton, and Bromley. So yeah, being a being a Premier League football club as well, it does have that pull and that. Whoa, it's it's, it's the Premier League. It's the, probably one of, if not the biggest, sporting kind of brand in the world. But do those um, do those brands offer you some of their players? I don't know. I saw. I'm sure I saw a picture. Yeah, of Zaha. So, so, yeah. Uh, so Zaha came down to custody before and had a conversation with him in custody. Explained what divert was to him. Um, explained why we feel that it's an important program to be running out of custody, and he agreed. He said the same thing. Um, echoed with everything that I, I've said in this interview, in the sense that he also grew up with a lot of um, peers. Thankfully, he he remained on the straight and narrow, as did myself somewhat, and avoided avoided custody. But he was saying that a lot of his peers could have benefited from a program like Diver at the time. Someone coming in that's independent from the Met Police to just offer that that support, that help, that lifeline at, in a moment where someone really needs it. Because all you do in that cell, all you have in that cell is time to think, time to reevaluate some of the decisions that you've been making in your life and mentally start start to plan how you can make things better for yourself going forward. And how do you manage the two? Because you're still at the foundation, I take it. You're still working at the foundation, but is Divert a full-time job or are you juggling the two? No, so, so funnily enough, um, late 2019, I was presenting Divert. So I done that. I presented um, Divert at the House of Parliament to a couple of MPs, which went well. Good, good opportunity to network and to allow the other organisations outside of London to 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 find out about Divert as well. Then another done another presentation at um, a police station, but the one of the people that was in the room at the time was one of the head of services for Sutton Council. Um, like the youth, the, the, the people and, and children, um, department. So they kind of, for lack of a better term, headhunted me. So they kind of said, look, we like, we like what you've been doing. We've heard a lot about the work that you've been doing. And they kind of took me away from working full time on Divert 
to do similar work, but for certain council and the yacht. So over there, I'm a, um, I'm a specialist crime prevention worker for, for certain council working for um, a team called You Think, where we work with young, um, young people aged 10 to 17 within the borough of Sutton that is either on the cusp of or currently getting involved in, in different criminal or antisocial behaviour um, within the local community. We go into schools, we work with young people one-to-one and we offer that advice, information around um, county lines, around knife crime, around um, antisocial behaviour, around consequential thinking, peer association, emotion regulation, just to kind of get young people to gain the knowledge and understand where they're going wrong um, and where they can kind of end up in the criminal justice system if they don't start making the right choices. Um, so I've been doing that since February 2020, so February last year, and then I do divert around that now. Why Why do you do what you do, Aaron? I mean, you, 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 you were a talented football player, you're a qualified football coach, you went in and got your degrees, you know, you could have taken your talents and your education and your knowledge, your wisdom, etc. You could have taken that in a completely different direction. So why does Aaron concern himself with these issues that many people ignore or, or, or don't want to engage with? Why do you do what you do? I think it's like my, in a sense, unconscious bias. I don't know if that's the right term, because when I, the, the, all the children that I work with, or young adults, similar to myself, similar background, similar upbringing, me going into a primary school or a secondary school as a PE teacher, I'm not guaranteed to, to speak with young people that are remotely or, or anywhere near the lifestyle that I've grown up around. But I know that their the, the chance I will have that disconnect. But I know that in this kind of work, all the young people, young adults that I speak to, they can look at me as someone that's relatable. And how the current climate is in London in terms of crime, in, in particular with young people, I think there's more need for this kind of work. As cliche as it is, prevention is better than cure. I'd rather go in and do this work now and hopefully... If there's, if there's more people like myself out there doing the work, it makes London a bit safer, especially for my, my children, my nephews, any other young people that I have any association with. I want them to be able to grow up in a, to be able to walk to the shop, not fearing of being stabbed or being robbed. But yeah, work in progress. Going to need a lot more people. But yeah, I, I, that's that's probably why I do. I think I, I, I'm a lot more passionate about this kind of work than I would be if I were to, to, to follow through and become a PE teacher. You know, what you do in both whatever hat you, you have on is, is offering people a second chance, which is what my podcast is about. What, what does second chance mean to you, Aaron, personally and for the people that you work with? I think for myself, second chance is just another opportunity to get where you kind of want to get to. Because I think everyone, everyone that comes into, every person in life will have a dream, um, a want, somewhere that they want to be. They may feel like the first hurdle. Second chance will be someone coming in and helping them over the second hurdle and then allowing them to continue on that path, which a lot of people don't have the resources. Um, they don't know the right people. If they, they're growing up in a certain environment, they haven't got the right arm over the shoulder to kind of offer that advice or that support to, to get to that second hurdle and get over it. A lot of them will be like, yeah, you feel like the first hurdle, so forget that path. Come over here where the money's a lot easier. You don't have to work as hard, etc. So yeah, I think second chance is that opportunity to get over that that second hurdle and get supported on that, that journey. I think for young people, it's hard. Working with young people, you realize they don't, they very rarely see beyond a month. If we're being honest, it's, it's all short term. So it's just trying to get them to understand, look, this is your second chance and explaining to them what second chance looks like. Second chance is another opportunity to get where you want to get to. If you want to be a professional footballer and you get injured, a second chance would be you getting fit, you finding yourself another team and trying again. If you go for a job interview, you don't get it. Second chance would be you apply for another similar job and you try it again. You learn from the, the question that you, you weren't as strong as in your previous interview and see if you can get better. They were just trying to get people to, to understand that, that there are, everyone does deserve a second chance. It's just a matter of how open they are to accepting the support for that second chance.
Well, it's great that we have champions like you out there doing what you do, because no doubt it makes a difference. Is there anything that you want to talk about or share with me about the work that you do um, that I've not asked you, Aaron? Um, I think we covered it, covered a lot, covered most of it, to be honest. Yeah, just that diverts obviously expanding nationwide and obviously Pan London, a lot more custody suites, a lot more custody um, coaches coming involved, coming on board. Thankful. I, I'm sure everyone can kind of agree that anything that gets expanded is obviously working. They very rarely expand something that, that doesn't work, especially when it comes to to money. So thankfully, obviously, Sadiq Khan's pledged uh, the money for the next year. And yeah, hopefully, hopefully it continues. Hopefully um, more and more people can kind of receive that support because it, it, it end up falling to like that pay it forward. You help someone, they help three people around them. They help three people around them. So from you helping one person, you potentially help nine or 12 people um, like indirectly. So that's what we try to try to do, um, especially myself. I always tell people, look, if you've got any friends that's interested in this course as well, tell them to hit me up and we can get them on the course as well because there's 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 more than one route to the top and there's more than one seat up there as well so we just try to help as many people as we can and your family are they proud of what you do yeah but i'm i'm i think i'm one person i don't take like i don't take compliments well <laughs> like I, I don't know it makes me uncomfortable i feel because this is a job i think so what i do i don't think it's like out of the out of the out of, like it's I don't feel like I go above and beyond. No, but it takes a certain type of person to be prepared to sit down in front of, I had a conversation with a woman earlier on, she's got three kids and she was asking me how to have a conversation with her kids, you know, and these are not kids that are getting in trouble, just had, you know, to learn more about her kids. And what, what advice have I got? I'm just like, well, listen to what they have to say. Sometimes that's all you have to do. Listen. And once you hear your kids, which we don't do enough of, once you hear what somebody has to say, then it offers you more of an opening about what you might be able to do or give advice or, or, but that's not what people do. We often condemn too much. You know, the headlines in newspapers, knife crime is out of control. Young kids are killing young kids. You know, when the statistics show otherwise, it is a problem and no one can hide uh, around the violence. But a lot of work, work that you're doing, Divert is doing the Violence Reduction Unit. A lot of work is in place and is is being attempted and is trying. And we mustn't forget that, you know, that you guys are out there meeting and talking to young people, trying to steer them on a different path, giving them other opportunities. So you should be, and I know you must be, very proud of the work that you do. It's this unrecognised work that I like to make sure people are aware of. No, definitely. And all thanks goes to everyone at Neuro Foundation. You know, the likes of Anne-Marie, the likes of Wilf Pickles, the likes of Kate, Nick, Jack, yeah, everyone that kind of creates that platform. Because obviously without the platform, we can't do what we ca- we do. Without Neuro Foundation, realistically, there's no divert. So you just got to be thankful to, to, to allow them to put us in a position where we can help as many people as we, we try to. Thank you, Aaron, for coming on the podcast and, and following on from, from Jack. It's been fascinating listening to you and really interested. And good luck with the rest of your work. Thank you. If you want to learn more about the Divert program, you can find more details on their website. You know, this Divert program works towards reducing offending at a critical stage in the justice process. And I believe it can and is making a real difference. And with guys like Aaron, who are committed to the cause and changing the lives of these young people. And I say these young people, but I really mean our brothers, our sisters, our sons, you know, our cousins, our friends or even those young people you see on the street who Aaron rightly said are sometimes stereotypically seen as what they're not. And I think we all need to take responsibility to remember that just because of the way someone dresses or the way that they look or the way that they talk doesn't mean we have to criminalise that individual and further marginalise them within their own communities. Thanks for listening to this episode and please share and follow us on social media. It'd be great if you could rate and review on the site where you listen to this podcast. If you want to support or advertise on this show, please get in touch. 
If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Road Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Parsons. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.